everyone. This is Chasing the Moment, a podcast where we bring enlightening thoughts on individual and communal reality to the forefront. I am one of your co-hosts, Matthew Graberger. And I am Jesse Davenport. And welcome to where we talk about the mind, soul, and science. Um, Matthew, these are really heavy times right now. We both came into this podcast with an idea of what we were going to do. <laughs> and then, or at least yesterday, we had an idea of what we were going to do. And then when we started talking, it was like, yeah, let's just put that on the back burner and do a current events topic today um, about just the, the heavy things that are going on. Today's date is 924. Um, I feel like I should put a time stamp as to how many days it's been since the beginning of the COVID crisis and the economic depression, and then put a time stamp since we had President Trump as president, um, because these are weird times. I feel like sometimes there's just a disconnect between some things personally and then reality, and it's just weird times watching tv you would think it's apocalyptic tribulations and i know that generations in the past have said the same thing um heck we people lived through world war ii people lived through world war one the cold war but at what cost but as a yeah (laughs) but as a country we've never really felt this turbulent of a time um i feel like um Granted, I'm only 30 years old. That's where we've been around for quite a bit. I definitely think there's been some, you know, like the Civil War would qualify, the Cold War, where, like, I I have heard stories from family members who, you know, were waking up every morning wondering if it was going to be the day that, you know, the USSR dropped some sort of bomb on them. You know, so there have been some of these markers in American historical context. But that being said, America's just such a young nation historically. America's almost a teenager, if you will, and we're in the angsty teenage years of American life. And yeah, we rose to power so quickly, too. Yeah, we rose to power so quickly. And there's something to be said about that because just because you have power doesn't mean that you're wise. Just because you have power doesn't mean that you're mature. Just because you have power doesn't mean you're necessarily the world leader. Um, People have looked to us as a world leader, as a stabilizing force. Um, But you look around the world and the perception of America is, ah, the place that starts all the wars and the place that... um, Polices. Yeah, um, invented modern policing as we know it and, and we and we try to police the world as well yeah yeah we get our um we get our hands in business that isn't ours because we feel like we have the authority to do so and it kind of is i don't know somewhere along the way there was this idea of american exceptionalism and i think it's an inherently racist idea this idea that white Europeans came to America and just immediately assumed that they were superior to indigenous people, immediately assumed 
that black people were inferior for a variety of racist reasons and that they could be enslaved. Um, I even think to like, even in colonial times, you know, Elizabeth Key was a, was a black woman in Virginia who, who was raped by a white man and then they had a biracial child and then that biracial child and Elizabeth Key were converted to Christianity, right? And under British law, you couldn't be Christian and you couldn't be enslaved. And so, um, so they were freed and colonials had to rewrite the law to where the racial and ethnic identity of a child is not ascribed to the mother, but it's ascribed to the father. And what this did is it allowed white men to rape as many black women as they wanted to without fearing uh, the repercussions of having a child um, a black child or a biracial child that was then going to become free. And so America kind of invented this idea that, I don't know that they invented the, the idea, but they certainly reinvented the idea that we can construct laws in a way that benefit the preservation of power. And because we have that power, then that makes us um, exceptional, that makes us better than, um, that makes others inferior to our superiority. And this is where we get doctrines such as white supremacy. Um, and then those doctrines are catapulted into the world. And one of my pieces I wrote just recently, I referenced the Johnson and Reed Act of the 1920s. And it was perhaps the most, the most damning immigration legislation in modern historical context. And Americans were the ones that, that instituted that in the 1920s. Um, the act was so vile and was so anti-immigration that it served as Hitler's inspiration for his anti-immigration poli policies. And so again, like this idea that like America has been this bounty of prosperous ideals, you know, people look to America to achieve the American dream, this idea that you can be whoever you want um, if you just work hard enough and set your mind to it. And honestly, the whole thing's just bullshit. Like, if you're black, you can't be X number of things. If you're a woman, you can't be X number of things. If you're, if you associate with the LGBTQIA plus community, you can't, you're barred from certain things. Um, and it's only been recently that we've been able to push up against some of these barriers. And as we know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So when we begin to push up against those barriers, there's going to be this opposite reaction, this repulsive gut response from the heart of a corrupt nation. So yeah, this is the natural outcome. <laughs> like, like Jesse and I kind of kicked the whole podcast we had planned to the curb today because we were both feeling the existential weight of this moment. Um, and this moment isn't just happenstance. This moment is the inevitable outcome of what happens when unchecked empire goes unchecked. And I think we wanted to talk about grief. And I know I'm grieving this idea that America is what I used to think it was. This idea that America was this place of promise and this place of ideal, this place of a hope um, and dreams. And to realize that it's not and to realize that the ideals were dead before the whole thing even started is something that I've certainly been grieving over the course of these past four years, but particularly so in recent months and weeks. So yeah, I know, and it's completely hijacking 
kind of the way that I think and feel about everything. I told Jesse before we got started, I'm supposed to be planning Christmas music for church services right now. And like, how do you plan Christmas music in the middle of a dystopia, apocalyptic pandemic where the good news of the gospel is not even good news anymore? How do you plan Christmas music when more than 200,000 people have died of a pandemic that is just completely unchecked and is still just running rampant? How do we plan Christmas music when the political system as we know it, democracy as we know it, is on life support? Like, how do you plan Christmas music for a world that... It's not joyful. Yeah, that is completely void of... Emotion, other yeah. than tribalism and... Oh, and Gosh, you were right. And just this, this depth of division. Like, Christmas is... In tradition, is a uniting time where we those that don't go to church go to church. Mm-hmm. Those that are um, politically divided, they they unite, break bread, and and it's crazy to think about this Christmas coming up that that there are people because it'll be post election, and there will be people that will be divided because. Somebody won the election over the other. Um, they will be divided over whether to wear a mask or not to wear a mask while while gathering. They're, they will be divided on whether to even gather, um, whether to travel. Um, families will be divided this Christmas. So it yes, it's going to be it's difficult to plan, even if we have Christmas services in person. It's just the sadness and that weight of knowing that this could be the um, the next few months. Mm. And even even thinking about this morning, the um, I was reading about President Trump's words on not guaranteeing a um, peaceful transition. And there's 74 days in between the election and the inauguration, and just possibilities and the weight of that 74 days and how a lot of uniting usually happens in that time um thanksgiving christmas new year my wife was yeah new year's um my wife was like i can't wait for valentine's day because after valentine's day we'll have known how the pandemic is going we will know how the um election and the transition hopefully fared and that we can go look towards spring and that new season and that actual new day. She's like, I, I just wish the next six months would just go away. And I'm looking at my five month old. I was like, I don't really want it to just go away, but in a way, mm-hmm. yeah, I want to live it, but, but not live it. Yeah. Like live certain aspects of it. Um, yeah, we make an idol, uh, we make an idol out of certainty sometimes, mm -hmm. um, and this idea, idol out of time as well. Yeah. This idea that we need certainty to, to move forward, to function. And we idolize it in a way that without it, we're, we're up a Creek, so to speak. And I know I'm guilty of that, but I look back and we've, 
we've endured a remarkably stable period of certainty with the within like my my entire life has existed within a framework that has been fairly stable and to think that wow this is what it must have felt like during world war 1 during world war 2 during the civil war um, during these just kind of markers in our history where certainty just wasn't even an option. And I too, mm -hmm. since, since the tension of, I really want to just hit fast forward on these next few months because, because if I know the outcome, whether good or bad, then I could prepare accordingly. Like I said, before we got started, I've been Googling, um, I've been Googling if my wife and I can get jobs in other countries because as someone who aspires to be a professor and aspires to work in academia, academics were jettisoned in Germany. Um, academics are, were jettisoned and, and if they weren't, uh, it didn't go very well for them. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, I'm grieving, like Abby and I like are thinking about, you know, What's it going to look like for us? And Abby's my wife, by the way. Abby and I are thinking about what it's going to look like for us um, to have kids in the not so distant future. And is it ethical to have children right now? Are we bringing those children into a world that is safe and that where we can guarantee that there will be peace and that they will have the opportunity to have a life secure from, secure from tyranny and a life full of dreams? and opportunities and we can't really say that right now and so for me today like I'm not just grieving the um, I'm not just grieving like there's just so much to grieve like I'm grieving all of the things that are happening and you're and grieving then, alone yeah almost. it's yeah it's like because we're not united, because we don't have these markers to really pull us together and to transcend our circumstances. It feels like I'm grieving in isolation, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And it's like, gosh, will there be a democracy? Will there be a world for my children to, to live safely in? You know, I have hopes and dreams for my life and my career and what I'd like to accomplish. And to think about, you know, not having those because we're trying to even survive, much less, you know, thrive. Thinking about my wife's dreams and how she wants to continue to educate children using the gift of music. We also know that art is one of the things to go when democratic societies fail. And so um, we've also seen the loss of art, at least in-person art in the context of this pandemic. And so it's just even just, art is being challenged. Yeah. It's it's like you can't create like this is art. A podcast I believe is art. Yes. And there will be a challenge to it. And and I, I want to go in for a quick second into the every action as an equal and opposite reaction. So yes, we're, we're I feel like I'm a prophet. I'm like, this is where we're going. And this is sort of how the prophets felt in the Bible. There's like, oh my goodness, this is what's happening. This is what's going to lay out. This is, this is, I'm seeing this um, come into fruition. And there's even things that I'm like, I cannot believe that this is going on. Like 2020 is so bad and crazy. 
that a hornet starts tapping on my window and I flip out because I don't know if this hornet could possibly break through my window just because it's 2020 and you never know. So just to give context to how I am right now, I'm flipping out. It wasn't even a hornet. It was a yellow jacket. It was very small, but you never know. Um, but for that opposite reaction, there are going to be those that are going to dig their heels into the Constitution. They're going to dig their heels into their freedom of carrying weapons, their freedom of doing all of these things and having full trust in the system. And yes, I think that the system, the, the Constitution is, it grows over time. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that the we grew over the past 200 years. It, it, the Constitution can grow, but through growth, it has to change some. But there are those that don't want it to change. There are those that just, these are my rights. Don't stomp on the flag. Don't kneel. Don't, don't do these things. And, and they see Matthew and I, I believe, as, as those radical, crazy snowflakes. Um, I think that's the term that some people put on. There's the liberal communists or socialists or liberal, whatever you want to say. And really, I think that of all people, I think those are the people that are the most naive to the social injustices that they are blind to um, and that they can't mourn because they don't acknowledge it. I think that they could see it, but it's not it's not hurting their wallet. It's not hurting anybody in their family. They've just grown numb to it. And a little bit my, of my background, a little bit of my background is I go into homes every day of the week and I'm going into rural Appalachia, like right on the edge, but that being on the edge, I'm going into these homes. I'm going into the Appalachian um, area and seeing just crazy things, um, mental illness, um, well, health issues, home issues, food issues, just every issue just played out in every home. And then I come back into the western area of Middle Tennessee and closer to Nashville and it's not counted as Appalachian area and I live in my white privileged neighborhood. I come back to um, my wife, my two kids, my 3,000 square foot house. I don't have a dog. I used to have a white picket fence. Um, don't want to go into a country song um, but just just seeing this every day it just starts to take a toll on you. And I think that people just live in their little bubbles. And yes, their bubbles were disrupted by the pandemic, but it wasn't shaken. Like every day my, I'm guilty that I have some of the things that I have. I'm guilty that I can't help the people more. Um, so I, I feel like every day I grieve and I almost go numb to it. So I know how that, that feels. So I'm not coming at this from a, oh, I'm, I've reached self-actualization. I am this prophet. I'm this anything. I'm just pointing out the blatant things that we should be mourning and trying to fix 
on a daily basis. Um, I feel like that's what Christ wants us to do is he wants us to work daily on building towards helping others. But I think that that takes morning. That takes time. It, it takes that, that acknowledgement that it's there, processing it through the grieving process, running through a, a process of doubting the, the reason why it got there, doubting the systems that got, it, got that person to where they are in life. Everything is a system. There, there's a mental health system. There is, we are all cogs in a will, and we have to acknowledge this, and then doubt it, and then through that doubt and that knowledge, we can then have faith in building something better. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, there's those that are so numb and naive to it that um, those are the people that are that are the opposites, the opposite reactions to what Matthew and I are, are aiming for. And the temptation lies for us to do likewise as well. There's the temptation to dissociate and to bypass. Oh, that doesn't affect me. So I don't have to worry about that. Or this does affect me, but I'm not going to grieve it because I have to move on to the next thing. Or, um, or they're like, oh, bless it. They did it to themselves. Um, yeah. They're, they are who they are because they chose to make those decisions. And the reason I got into all this was my thought process of, are we in the positions that we want to be in because of our decisions and our, the true consequences of what we do? Or is it the consequences of our environment and our in the system? Because really, these people would not choose to be schizophrenic in their home that is falling apart around them. Mm. These people are not choosing to be diabetic with COPD. It's because they were fed horrible food because of our health, our food systems. They are breathing horrible air because they are in horrible homes with horrible air, smoking cigarettes that were shoved down their throat by a system of Mm. marketing. It's really, it's just sad. It is sad. And I think it's both. And I think it's a product of, we are products of the systems by which we participate in, whether Mm -hmm. we want to participate in them or not. But then I also think, too, there is kind of what we're doing is we're pushing up against the system and saying it doesn't have to be this way. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, some people, this is the irony of uneducated, poor white voters supporting Donald Trump in masses. So like what Jesse and I are doing, we're pushing up against these systems, right? And Jesse used the word radical earlier. And I think it's just hilarious and ironic because um the the word radical is translated going back to the roots this is why we call a radish a radish it's a root right what jesse and i are doing is we're going back to the roots and we're asking questions like what are the things that are tearing us apart what are the things that would cause us to be unified um we're kind of asking some of these bedrock 
questions. Is it the system or is it our participation and agency within the system? We're kind of asking these questions that kind of get back to the heart of the matter. It feels like we're living in a world where those systemic existential questions go by unnoticed because we're dealing with whatever the next thing is. There are so many people that are so stuck in their self-identity and their tribal identity that they don't see how the the tribes are interacting. They don't Don't, see... They don't see the other. Yeah, they don't see the other. They don't see how things are manipulated. Um, They don't see how they are affected by all these external forces that that drive things um they they just see that okay i'm here this is me and i don't have to really necessarily worry about the poor and if i do worry about the poor i just give to my church and they help the poor or i give to my local whatever and and they help the poor or i did my time this week i did i did my hour of community service um, and we're and it's so entangled. I mean, I I think, like I overheard a conversation. Actually, I was I was in East Tennessee not that long ago at a cabin getting some work done, and I I overheard a conversation of two white women with their with their little kids and strollers next to them, and they were talking and they were talking about how they were talking about how black people should just work more and not want to receive handouts, and I wanted to go up and say, well, actually. Black and brown people are the ones that have been working feverishly throughout this entire pandemic because oftentimes we've relegated them to a lower socioeconomic status and we haven't opened the doors for them to to mobilize and move up in and through the American society. But the vast majority of our essential worker population and the primary two ethnic groups that have felt the brunt of COVID-19 and the deaths that have incurred thereafter are our black and brown neighbors. It's just fascinating. And like, we can tell black people that they shouldn't want a handout, but, you know, we're totally okay with our ancestors getting a handout in the GI Bill and the Homestead Act. And like, we just, you know, so we participated in a system that benefited us, but they're not allowed to participate in a system that benefits them. Um, because again, we have some sort of superiority complex. We have some sort of, there's some sort of, of gap that separates us from them. And like, I struggle with the duality of this as well. I, you know, I find myself saying, well, if it weren't for those darn Trump voters, if it weren't for those <laughs> white people 400 years ago, and there has to be a way that we can transcend and include all people. There has to be a third way, kind of like Jesse was alluding to earlier, to recognize that, that we're all human and that we are united by something that is larger than all of us, regardless of what labels you want to attach to that. For me, I think about it, we're all of God's creation. We're all of God's children. I've always been the... the, the the person in the room saying, why can't we get, we all get along. But even I find myself and have to check myself pushing, uh, pushing this idea that my problem is because, is because of someone else over there. Whereas perhaps our collective problem is that 
Um, we've bought into a system that prioritizes the individual over the communal. We've bought into a world that says you go get yours and stomp all over top of everybody else to get there. Um, we've prioritized a world where individual grief is the norm rather than collective grief. We've prioritized a world where individual consumption is prioritized over collective consumption. And this is why, ironically, um, you're seeing the far right actually have a pretty strong resurgence is because the base has unified. They've centered around a particular, a particular subset of ideals and ideologies, and they're really pushing a singular narrative. And granted, that narrative is destructive and is further dividing all of us as a whole, but we're seeing that there are power in numbers. We're seeing that tribalism works. Um, mm -hmm. And it's uh, quite terrifying because, you know, I look around and, and I want us to not ignore our differences. This is why colorblind rhetoric doesn't work. You know, I see your color and you see mine and we're both beautiful. Not, well, I don't think of you as black. And like the colorless rhetoric just doesn't work. We have to find a way to transcend and include. All of our differences is what makes the whole thing beautiful. I, it's an elementary metaphor, but honestly, it's so simple. You know, we wouldn't have a rainbow if we didn't have all of the colors of the rainbow. If the whole thing was just blue, it, it wouldn't be nearly as beautiful. We wouldn't call it what it is. We wouldn't marvel every single time we saw one after a storm. And so we have a, a quick thing. Yeah. Did you know that the color blue does not exist in some um, cultures because they did not put a name to it? That's interesting. Which gets yeah. into which gets into a whole other thing about how language. Well, does reality even exist if we don't observe it? <laughs> yeah, you know? that's the whole the whole black box. If it's unobserved, then what's going on in the black box? Yeah. Yeah. There's a tree, there's a tree fall in the forest. If no one's there to hear it, atoms, this is fascinating. An atom in point A takes every possible path to point B, but it only reveals which path it took until it's observed. So our observation of the whole thing, our mm -hmm. observation of the moment that we're in our is. Our observation of others. Yeah. Like we are, ever changing mm -hmm. and we're we are all different and then and we have to and we have to observe and put that language behind who you are who you are for us to create a society that is fair that is just that is equal that is ideal for all that gives everyone that is truly like if we truly want our country to be american to be democratic, if we truly want a country that embodies the ideals that we keep on saying that we are, we have to see the other. We have mm -hmm. to recognize our differences and we have to, in some cases, reconcile our differences mm -hmm. and then move forward into a collective consciousness that, you know, it's this idea of, yeah, I, and I've got so many individual rights people and low-key boogaloo people in kind of the areas that I'm that I'm a part of and and I just can't get past the idea that 
once our individual rights transcend the rights of another, at that point, do our individual rights mean much of anything if they exist only to subjugate and marginalize the other? Yeah, I, I just can't get past this idea that there, there is a collective um, consciousness, a collective right that transcends our individual mm -hmm. imperialistic tendencies. And I think that we have gone down this road so long that the first step is that grieving. Mm, um, that's really good. And that grieving of gosh, not only as America, but then as a globe, because we live where only how much 5% of the globe, global population. But if, if imagine if we could grieve and process the past 400 years and understand the history of it as the whole point of history is to understand it, process it, grieve about it. This is why Donald Trump doesn't want us yes. to study our history because we would have to go back to the roots. We would have mm -hmm. to, to be radical. So we'd have to go back to the roots and acknowledge the exact thing that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So that it's easier just to bypass. It's easier just to push it away. It's easier just to act like it doesn't exist than to actually go back to the root of in the heart of the matter and actually grieve the thing to figure out how to do something new and better. Yes, absolutely. So the, the grieving of the past and then grieving of our position and where we are as a globe. Imagine if we, if we acknowledged our fallacies in the Middle East. Imagine if we acknowledged Oof our fallacies with our relations with Russia, China. Imagine if we went to our enemies and actually did what Christ said and to love your enemies. That, that doesn't mean that they are alike. That doesn't mean that they have to accept our democracy. That doesn't have to mean that they accept our idealisms, but that we acknowledge them for who they are and strive to help them realize that we are in this together. And then hopefully through that relationship, then you get those changes and maybe China won't be as harsh on certain religions. Maybe China wouldn't do some of the things that they do. Maybe the Middle East would the relationships would improve. And this is one, um, one thing that I've actually agreed with um, President Trump about is keeping our, keeping our stupid guns and our stupid, keeping our nose out of the Middle East and just being us and, and, not, and not trying to go into Iraq, not going into Afghanistan, but just trying to not do what we've done in the past where we go into Vietnam and to Korea and try to put ourselves in a dominating position for financial gains. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that I agree with um, President Trump about that I've, that Jared Kushner has actually mentioned. So yeah, there's one thing out of four years of political context that I've agreed with so far. <laughs> I mean, there's something to be said about the American first ideology in the sense that 
you know, it does the thing that you just described. It creates exactly because I agree with you on, on that point. And the irony there is that America's got a lot of shit to deal with before we can really speak a message of goodness and unity and democracy into the world. Like, yeah, look at President Trump at the United Nations the other day. He was speaking, and it was like, if I were even living here, I was like, man, that's just, you're just blowing hot air at these people. Imagine what the people that don't live here and have those ideals, imagine what they're thinking. Oh, yeah, like our, yeah, our reputation is in the trash, which is a whole other thing. Like there, like even a couple years, even last year when Abby and I went to France, it was a, all right, how many people can we fool and how long can we hide the fact that we're from America? And like people say, you know, well, you should be proud to be an American. And I look back on our history and I say, really? We should be proud? Like we should be proud of our, of just the, the litany of transgressions and the litany of suffering that our nation has caused. We built this nation not on God, but on the backs of black and brown people. And stealing the land of the Native Americans. Yeah. Like, I just, now's not the time to, to dig in our heels and be proud, but now's the time to look back to our roots and to examine and to grieve and to put on sackcloth and ashes and to mourn how far off the rails this thing has gone. And then to repent and seek a way forward. And I don't know that like that's going to happen individually, right? You and I are gonna are gonna grieve that. But are is that something that we're able to do collectively? I don't know. And to swing it back into the current context, I was just not only so grieved by the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the fact that like one person dying can completely jeopardize uh, the constitutional rights for whole swaths of people groups of whole swaths of United States citizens. Um, Mm -hmm. I think the fact that one person, just one person dying can jeopardize the rights of hundreds of millions of people, rights to rights to healthcare, rights for LGBTQIA plus people to anti-discrimination laws, rights for people of color, rights for immigrants, rights for women and their decisions regarding their reproductive systems and their body. The fact that one person can die and all of that is in jeopardy, um, I think, uh, I think is- The bubble wrap was not thick enough. Yeah, I think it's reasons. (laughs) I think it's reason uh, for us to not, to not be proud, but I mean, I don't even have a Twitter account and I got onto Twitter and within 10 minutes of Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying, we had United States senators, United States senators, and United States representatives in the House of Representatives tweeting, not condolences to, Ruth, to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her family, but tweeting about how this is an opportunity to cement their political power. 15 minutes afterwards, there was a candidate from Georgia for the House of Representatives who published an advertisement campaign to her supporters via email, and the headline was, 
Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died. The time to act is now. Like, can we not give a moment to grieve that? And the reason why I wrote a piece this morning called, called The United States of America is Dead, and I don't think it's because of President Trump's re remarks of not guaranteeing a peaceful transition of power, though I think they, they certainly play into it. I think it's dead because of all the things that we've talked about up until this point. America died a long time ago. We're just, at least our ideal of America died a long time ago. And we're, and it's taken centuries for us to realize that. And so we've I'm lost. Gonna, I'm going to push back on that. Okay. So, so the, the ideals of America or the United States I don't think that those can can die. I think that an ideal is a perfect object that you're striving for. It's the aim. And I think that there are ways that you can get further away from that ideal. Um, but I think that it, it, it's always there. And it might be a little different for everybody. But that idea of um, pursuit of peace, happiness, um, and freedom and justice for all i know i just butchered that um but that's that ideal i think that you can get further away from it but i don't think it necessarily dies i think that um you can be blinded to it and i think people are blinded to it right now as far as the the right ideal the one that the founding fathers were trying to get to i know that um, when Alexander Hamilton was writing the, the supporting documents for the Constitution, it was these were guides to that idealism. And you're, it's always going to be messy. Ideally, people think, people used to think idealism or an ideal situation was communism. And then people thought that socialism was an idealism or an, an ideal way of living. There's the idea that being a millionaire is idealism. That's the way that you want to get or where you want to get. You have that aim. But it's all the bullshit around it that stops you from getting to it and the bullshit that um, diverts you from keeping your eye on on that idealism. So I don't think that it's dead. I don't think the, that the United States idealism is dead. I think that the the way we're getting there, it, we're basically on a ghost ship with a ghost captain trying to guide us in the fog. And it's going to take a lot to revitalize that. So I, I wanted to push it against that a little bit. No, and I appreciate your critique, but I do think something has died. And I'm mm -hmm. trying to put my finger on what that is because it obviously, you know, especially from a Christian perspective, you know, the idea is that we're not put, supposed to put our hope in principalities of this world and all of that stuff. But at the same time, like I know, like it's one thing I wrote in another piece not that long ago where I referenced this idea that the, you know, the light shines brightest in the darkness and the darkest is not, it's not an obstacle, but rather an opportunity. The darkness is an invitation for us to continue to pursue these ideals, for, for us to continue to live into these ideals, for us to continue to make 
lives and art that embody life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, grace and goodness and freedom. But you're right. It feels like the mechanism that we use to get there has died. The mechanism for so long has been these systems within this constitutional framework and it feels like the mechanism no longer works. And so the question is, is can, and this is why I jumped to the drastic statement of the United States has died, and perhaps it's an overgeneralization, but what I think I'm trying to get at is this idea that the mechanisms by which we achieve those ideals have failed us to some extent. And so the question, not to some extent, failed us entirely. So the question is, is how do we reimagine a country where um, these mechanisms do the things that we hope for, do the things that we long for, provide space for us to grieve? You know, this is what you and I referenced 9-11 earlier as this thing that created a profound space for us to be united and to grieve and to recognize our shared humanity. What, like- Why can't we do that right now with COVID? Why can't we do that right mm. now with the death of a female lying in bed and getting shot? Why can't we grieve mm. as a country for these horrible things going on? Yeah. And why, people why? are just caring about the, the freaking stock market and the freaking Well, I it's it's poignant you flag getting milled about and yeah. yeah. It's the whole, you know, our justice system just just effectively said that drywall means more than a black life. You know, like this is why black people are just done because they've watched the system repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly fail them. And for white people, they don't see the humanity of Breonna Taylor's death. They see a threat to they see a threat to law enforcement and they see the fact that she's black and immediately assume that, oh, well, she had it coming, you know, regardless of the circumstances, which, gosh, if there's one person you can't make that case about, it's freaking Breonna Taylor. Oh my gosh, the woman was, was the epitome of what, what mobility looked like for the black community being dealt a difficult hand and then making the most of it. Like, isn't that one of the American ideals we hold to? And all we can talk about is the destruction of property and looting and being out after curfew. Like, are those things or, more, or you're more always, important than a human life? Yeah, or the people that are like, well, you know, they're, they're up in Chicago shooting each other. We can't do anything about that. It's like there's a system there's a reason why these things are happening. You can't yes. not just continue to blame the yeah, you can blame the individual, but you have to also look at the why. Mm -hmm. The why is this happening is the most important thing. And I think that you get to that why through the grieving process and mm -hmm. and that in that growth of processing it. Because we you have, have to, we have to we have to learn from our mistakes and we have to grieve. Our, yeah, and we're not learning from any mistakes, really, right now. We're not learning from the mistakes of 
not wearing a mask, the mistakes of having a system that is shooting tear gas into peaceful protesters. Um, we're not learning from the mistakes of really anything right now. I don't think we're learning anything. And those that are learning are the ones that are identified as the liberals and that we just don't acknowledge that. Um, we're just going to keep on living our lives, trying to pull ourselves up by their bootstraps and try to be a multi-billionaire, which will never happen because we are in a system that's not going to let you be a multi-billionaire. But guess what? We cannot tax the rich because just in case I become a multi-billionaire, I don't want my money taken away. Mm. Yeah. I don't want it, this to come off as like a Jesse and I ranting on no, our liberal soapbox. I think that out of all of this, positive side is growing from it. I think the positive side of this is changing and evolving and refitting the systems to benefit people. And I think that Matthew and I are trying to acknowledge this in trying to incite some mourning within our listeners and viewers to rethink things so that you can grow. This is about you and the community and reality and to rethink the reality of the systems and how can I make a difference in my world. And every day I try to make a difference in every in every way, in every interaction with every human that I can make, um, just a positive change, just even one positive change. Um, if you look at in Christ and, and the idea of giving 10%, if we just gave 10% of ourselves, not even monetarily, but 10% of ourselves towards the poor, towards some idealism that we're trying to aim for, Imagine how wonderful this world would be. We don't even have to give 100%. We don't have to give 80%. If we give 10%, I think that's where the tithing came from, was just thinking 10% more than you do about how to change the world. This is what it means when it says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship. Mm-hmm. So I think we can grow stronger, not as tribes, but as a collective to strive for that idealism. And this is going to challenge us. This is going to challenge the people like you and I who are in these rural conservative areas to find ways to humanize the other in the face of not in the face of dehumanization, we have to humanize the other. It can't be an eye for an eye, tooth mm -hmm. for a tooth. Like it, this is love your enemy. Yeah, and this is and we're and we're seeing this struggle play out in the fight against police brutality. This is why nonviolent peaceful protest and just being subjugated, offering your lives as a living sacrifice, just being subjugated to that, ignited in a collective awareness. We're going to have to find some way to humanize the other. And we know it's not going to start with, with <laughs> you know, we know it's not going to start with people that don't see 
black and brown and LGBTQIA plus people as human. Like we know it's not going to start with them. So it has to start with us modeling what it looks like to humanize the other and to love our neighbor and to love our Build enemy. relationships. Push past. I had a fascinating theological conversation with a friend who has swung to the to the far rungs of conservative theological Christian ideology, so much so that it's scaring me. And I've been tested and challenged, and I think been supernaturally given just an amount of patience that I didn't have for that person before. You know, there's Rob Bell talks about power and the different kinds of power that we use in the world. And he uses the analogy of hammers and smells, this idea that we can wield power with a hammer. We can wield power with our might and subjugate the other. Where there's that power when you smell food and you can't not go downstairs to the kitchen and see what's going on. There's that smell of, of candlelight. There's just something about it that draws you to it that ignites your heart rather than your arm and your hand and a hammer. There's something about the wooing of another. And I think we have to find some way to transcend and include even those who we know are actively oppressing people. There has to be a way to love our enemies and woo them into a collective consciousness that doesn't just embody these ideals, but that then helps rebuild the mechanisms to make a just and loving and fair world for the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness of all people. I think that that comes from that loving a neighbor, loving your enemy, and just having that love. So really, we're going to explore in the future just all these different topics and all these facets of life but always look through the facet of love and and how do you best love others absolutely so i'm going to end this like i do every week um live and love in every moment thank you and don't forget to follow us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, um, follow us on Spotify, whatever platform. Please give us feedback. We love feedback. Thank you, Matthew, for guiding us through all of this. I know that was a heavier episode than we've done. Well, I like everyone else, and I'm just searching about how to navigate this experience. And I have to remind myself just to take it one moment at a time.